So good morning, Eastside family. We want to let our children ages three through third grade make their way in that direction to junior worship. The rest of you, we want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. And as you're turning there, I want to make you aware of a very important aspect of our worship service, of our worship to God, and that is our offering that we bring to God so faithfully each week. We certainly appreciate that. There are four ways we make possible the offering. Uh, every week we make it possible. You can mail a check to the church address. You can give an automatic draft through your bank. Quite easy to do. You can go online to our website. There's a button that says, I think, give. Just click that button, follow the easy instructions. Or if you're here in person, then you can just drop your contribution there off at the table on the way out. If you're not here in person and you're here with us online, we are humbled, we are honored. It means the world to us that you are here and though you're not here in person, you're just as much here uh, with us uh, and this means a lot. And if you happen to be from all places visiting from Alaska, then we are so glad to have you here. Or if you happen to be all the way from Kuwait, we're glad to have you as well. Hey, before we get started, uh, that's Skip and Wanda's family. They're all here taking up almost a whole road. Just so glad to have them. Um, I want to mention one thing real quickly before we get into the lesson today. Starting next week, right back over there by the coffee cart and the cookies, we're going to have what's called life group sign up. Life groups, that's the heart of our church life. And if you have questions about it, come back there next week. If you want to start a group, come back there and talk to us next week. If you want to be in a group, if you're not sure, we're going to be back there. A lot of our life group leaders are going to be back there. And we just really want to encourage. We would just be delighted if everybody, that's, it was in a life group. That is really, that's really where church is happening in incredible ways. So today we are in our final lesson. It's going to be a walk or segue into communion. If you're wondering, why haven't we had communion? I'm going to share some thoughts to lead us into that. This text just really lends to that so well. This is our final lesson in, in a, just a mini-series that we've been in in Luke called Lord Teach Us to Pray. And today, as we've had with the other three lessons, we're learning from the life example of Jesus and from his teaching how to pray and what it means to pray. And this is an incredible story. It, it takes us into the very private, to the very personal, and to a very painful moment in time in Jesus' life. We're going to see in this story the, the very human side of Jesus. This week I have gained a greater appreciation for who Christ is by simply seeing this story and really wrestling with it. I would even say that in this story we're going to see what we're not supposed to see. And what I mean by that is that too, too often it seems as though the church has done a disservice to people who are battling with depression or, or stress or anxiety, basically given the message if those are your struggles, well, Something is wrong with you. You're kind of weird. Your faith is really not where it needs to be. But you ought to take a closer look at Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look at the number of times he battled with grief, with pain, with anxiety, and with sorrow. 
His life was marked by those things. And you're really going to see in this story today, not only, not only were, was grief and anxiety and, and, and mental anguish part of the journey of disciples of Jesus, but it was also part of Jesus' life as well in a, in a very real way. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us, Matthew and Mark and John, they give parallel accounts of these different stories. In Matthew's parallel account of this story, Matthew records Jesus' words saying, Jesus said, my soul is, is swallowed up, depending on how you translate that. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's like, this right now, this is killing me. You ever been there? Jesus has been there. As a matter of fact, of this same moment, I believe Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 is speaking into this story we're going to look at today. And it says in Hebrews 5, 12, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud crying and tears. That's Jesus to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard. So Jesus' prayers weren't always upbeat, happy, clappy, praise, and thanksgiving. His prayers were accompanied by loud cries and tears. We'll see that today in this story. And this story, I believe, was what we see in such a moment of Incredible emotional pain. It shows us here we learn a prayer that prayer is, as I'm entitling today's lesson, is an antidote for anxiety. The word antidote, if we didn't know that word or didn't use that word, man, if we've been using that word over the past two years, the COVID pandemic and its antidotes have dominated our attention. But there is, to an even greater degree, an incredible epidemic, pandemic, call it what you want, of anxiety that's killing us. And here we find a response to it in the story of Jesus, and that's prayer. Let's enter the story. Let the Holy Spirit take us into this private, personal moment of Jesus. Verse 39, we're just going to go verse by verse. Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So let's stop there. Let's kind of get in the context. It's late Thursday night. Jesus has had the, the Last Supper with his disciples. He is soon going to be arrested. Imagine this is your story tonight. He is soon going to be arrested. He is going to be taken to trial to a kangaroo court where he's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured. And he's going to be brutally executed. And he knew this was going to happen to him. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a, it was a hangout for Jesus whenever he came to Jerusalem. It was this long ridge. It was about a half a mile long. And it would take about a, a Sabbath day's walk from Jerusalem. It was east of Jerusalem to get there. It was, it was the, basically the highest peak in the area. And from there you could have just this beautiful view of Jerusalem. Luke tells us in, in Luke 20, in 21, 37, that Jesus, when he would come to Jerusalem, he'd go out to the Mount of Olives, and this is where he would spend the night. So it's, it's like camping out 
on the mountain. So Jesus would have fit in perfectly well here in Colorado, in Colorado Springs. We read also, the historians tell us that pilgrims, that Jewish people who'd make a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem, they'd come outside of the city and this would be the place where they, would, where they would camp out and the next day they'd go back into the city. Matthew, Mark, in their parallel accounts of this story, tell us that the Mount of Olives was also called, and many of us know this name, the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. They would actually take the olives from these trees that were all over the Mount of Olives and they would put them in a press and they would press that with rock down into what would eventually come out as, as olive oil. And so you, you, you can't help but see the symbolism in this location. This is a time when Jesus is being crushed with emotional pain and as soon as going to be crushed physically and we find him in this place called Gethsemane on oil press he's between a rock and a hard place and it's closing in some of us probably find ourselves there even now but Jesus didn't just go there to camp out and to sleep you want to notice where it says here Jesus went as usual if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that word as usual. It was often used in reference to times when Jesus would go to a solitary place. This was his custom, as usual, to a solitary place in a, solid, in a solitary time, often to a mountain where Jesus would pray. That's a huge example for us to follow. In the busyness and the grief and the anxiety and the stress of our lives. It's not, I, I pulled out important. It's not important. It's crucial that you follow Jesus in this way to a time and place where you can commune with God. Do you have that time and place? I don't see how a person can say they are a follower of Jesus and prayer not be central to their lives because it was central to his life. And then in verse 40, as we read on, you can't help but, or at least I, I had to, to love what you see here about Jesus in verse 40, because this is at a time when Jesus is severely under great pressure, and this is at a time when it would have made sense for Jesus, he cares for people all the time, that this is his time. This is his time to pull back and focus on himself and focus on his sorrow and focus on his own problems. But again, as always, his attention is focused on others. He stops to, to speak to his disciples about what they're going through. He's, he's always the teacher. And if you keep following the story into Luke and Matthew, Mark, and John also tell us the same thing, that even when he was on the cross, when he should have been just totally self-focused, he was thinking about and caring about the people that were killing him. He was thinking about and caring about the two guys that were on both sides of him. He was thinking about and caring about his family and friends. Listen, one of the greatest things you can do for yourself when you're battling with stress and anxiety is not to do something for yourself, but to do something for someone else, which will in turn do something for you. It's, it's incredibly therapeutic. And so Jesus, knowing that what he was going through, his disciples were going through the same thing, Jesus, knowing they need to also pray, he gives them these words of instruction, verse 40, on reaching the place he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. 
Now, what was it, three or four weeks ago, we heard Jesus in these very similar words as he was teaching. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them to say these words, lead us not. Very similar words, lead us not into temptation. Jesus' disciples were and would be going through grief and agony and emotional pain. And they were going to be tempted beyond understanding. They were going to be tempted to to give up, tempted to quit, tempted to doubt Jesus, tempted to deny Jesus, tempted to respond irrationally, tempted just to run away and hide. Jesus says to his disciples, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And if you were just to reverse that and say it in its inverse, if you don't pray, you will fall into temptation. I would say that's very true. As a matter of fact, there's a truth that I have gained from this story, but it's also a truth that I have gained from my own life experiences. And it is this truth, the degree to which you pray is the degree to which you will stand or fall in temptation. The degree to which you pray is the degree to which you will stand under the strain of stress and anxiety. My experience confirms that. Scripture confirms it. But this story also validates that story as you compare Jesus and and Peter and the difference between Jesus and Peter. Peter is with Jesus in this story and instead of praying, Jesus is praying, Peter slept and you know how the story continued. As the story continues, Peter in the heat of temptation fell to temptation. Jesus in even greater heat of temptation stood firm. What was the difference? One was praying, one was not. Listen, if you get nothing else out of this, get this today, the degree to which you pray will be the degree to which you will stand or fall in temptation. Verse 41, we see Jesus practiced what he preached. Let's read it. Verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. A couple of things I I want you to notice about that. First of all, he withdrew. Drew. And you're going to see this again and again and again in the life of Jesus. He was constantly crowded by people. He was incredibly busy. You think your life is busy? He was busy. He was bearing the weight constantly of a lot of pain and a lot of grief. But somehow he figured out the importance of withdrawing to a place to be alone with the Father. He didn't wait for a time to pray. He made time to pray. And I know that a lot of us say when it comes to prayer, I just, just don't have time. I'm just so incredibly busy. And we're just kind of waiting until we get to that magic moment when we're over that hump. Listen, if you are too busy to pray, you're too busy. If you're waiting until your life isn't so crowded, isn't so hectic, isn't so busy, then it's likely you'll never, if ever, pray because that's just the nature of life. I remember as a kid, we used to sing the words to this song, take 
time, or I would say make time to be holy. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. Make time to withdraw. But it also says here in verse 41, he knelt down and prayed. And I think there's a very important lesson on the posture of prayer. I think it's quite interesting that our most common posture in prayer is what we're doing right now. It's sitting. But read Genesis to Revelation and tell me one example of people who were sitting while they were praying. I know of maybe one indirect possibility of it in Scripture. Maybe I'm mistaken, but it's clear in Scripture and it's clear in Jewish practice that they stood before God. As a matter of fact, the only one seated in examples of Scripture in prayer is God, and that's God seated on the throne. Everyone else is standing in reverence and attention, but here we see Jesus not standing, but we see him kneeling. It's an expression of reverence. It's an expression of of submission. It's an expression of desperation. And I would suggest also that one added benefit of, of kneeling is that it keeps your attention focused. I'm thinking that perhaps had the disciples been kneeling, they might not have fallen asleep. You're never going to fall asleep while you're on your knees. If you do, then you're soon going to wake up. In the parallel accounts of this story, Mark tells us, he tells us more than Jesus was kneeling. It says Jesus fell to the ground. Matthew, you want want to see this, you want to visualize this. Matthew says that Jesus fell on his face to the ground. He didn't carefully position himself in a prostrate position under the weight of anxiety. He fell to the ground on his face with loud cries, the Hebrew writer tells us, and tears that characterize Jesus in this story. We're not supposed to see this at church. It kind of looks embarrassing. Stupid. It looks looks weak. What are you doing lying there on the ground? You're the son of God. It's so unsophisticated, so, so undignified. You're going to wrinkle your clothes. You're going to get them dirty. You need to pull yourself up. Boy. You need to toughen up. You're the son of God of all things. Listen, if you find yourself under the weight of anxiety that you can do nothing else but fall to the ground on your face, you can know that Jesus has been there as well. And in this posture of prayer, lying on the ground with loud cries and tears streaming from his face, he prayed in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So again, we're reminded of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so in prayer, we learn that sure, express to God, God, this is what I want. I do that all the time. This is the way I'd like to see things happen. But God, 
I trust you. I submit to you. And I trust your will more than my own. Often, most of the time, what I want and what God wants are two different things. We are way far too poor judges of what is good for us. And so Jesus in his humanity, feeling this like I would have felt it, feeling this like you would have felt it, was not going, yeah, I'm in. He, he, was, he was not wanting in his humanity to face what was before him. And so he's, he, he asked for it to go away with the words, take this cup. If you're willing, take this cup. And God's answer was, I'm not willing. The Father didn't take it away. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, if, if there's anyone whose prayers the God the Father would answer, if there's anyone whose wishes and requests He would grant. It would certainly be his one and only son, but he didn't. So keep this in mind when you're not getting what you want in prayer. Actually, Jesus did get what he asked for. If you look at it from another perspective, it's because he prayed for the Father's will to be done. There was a good reason The Father didn't grant Jesus' request. And though your request is not being granted right now, some of you it's not, there very well could be a good reason, even though you don't like me saying that, and even though you can't see it right now. God's will, God's plan for the days ahead may be painful. They may be difficult. And so to pray this prayer that we're learning to pray from the example of Jesus is we're asking God, rule over my life. Rule over my wants. Rule over my feelings. Rule over my wishes. Rule over my relationships. Rule over my desires. Last week we learned a prayer of confession from the tax collector in what was in Luke chapter 18. We learned to pray the words, God have mercy on me a sinner. Today in this story we learn from Jesus to pray the words of prayer of submission. Your will be done, not mine. In verse 43 we read that an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and it strengthened him. Now in a previous sermon series, do you remember that series we had four or five weeks long on temptation? It was an angel that showed up at the end of that temptation story and he attended Jesus and he cared for him in the temptation time in the wilderness. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that God sends his angels to minister to his people. We're not told what the angel did here, but it's pretty clear that whatever that angel did, this was a way of affirming to Jesus in the midst of his agony, the Father is here, the Father sees, the Father cares, the Father loves you. The appearance of the angel in this story, it is, it is an incredibly important reminder that prayer is not a ritual. But prayer is a spiritual reality where God and his angels are present. It's a reminder that as we pray, 
Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. It's a song from the 70s. I can feel his mighty power and his grace. I can hear the brush of angels' wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. For me, it can be so easy for my prayers to slip into a worship ritual of words that I speak, almost as though they're going into thin air. The appearance of this angel reminds me that in prayer, I stand on holy ground in the presence of the Almighty God and His heavenly beings who surround His throne. And so now, after that, it's got to be incredible. What do, you, what do you expect after such a prayer, after the angels coming and caring for him? What do we expect now to see? Notice in verse 44, it says, and being in anguish. Maybe some of your translations say, and being in agony. The word there is agonia, from, from which we actually get the word agony. It means in being in a situation where he was literally fighting for his life and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground Matthew and Mark tell us he he prayed this prayer it went back he prayed this prayer three times it's like that persistent widow back and forth and you might just think after such prayers and after an angel being there all of the bad stuff poof gone away But it was just the opposite. Things didn't get better, but things got actually worse. To the point now that he is is drenched in the sweat of his anxiety. And there have been a lot of attempts to explain medically what this means. That he was, was he really sweating blood? But I think you want to notice that it says he was sweating and his sweat was like drops of blood. And I interpreted that to mean, man, he was like just sweating profusely kind of like we say he was sweating bullets we really don't literally mean those were bullets it's just he is under the weight and pain and feeling the ang- and ag- agony of that moment what do you do when you're in a painful situation and you pray as you're supposed to again and again and again And instead of things getting better, they get worse. Some people say, I'm done with that. Luke writes and tells us, Jesus prayed more earnestly. As his painful circumstances increased, so increased his prayers. Prayer doesn't always take us from our painful circumstances, but it always takes us through our painful circumstances to the other side, which for Jesus in this story was the resurrection, was hope and new life. And the same is true for your story as well. And so now the story closes in verses 45 and 46. We read, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. Look at this, exhausted from sorrow. 
This wasn't an exhaustion from a long, hard, physical day of putting out effort. This was an exhaustion. Have you ever felt this way? Such an exhaustion from from mental anguish and stress and anxiety. And it's just you're at the point where you don't feel like doing anything else but praying as the disciples were doing. And maybe you see this story and you think, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought these were followers of Jesus. What are they doing with all this sorrow and this mental exhaustion? I think I thought Christians are supposed to have lives that are marked by, by joy and energy and excitement. These are followers of Jesus? Well, yeah, joy marks the life of a follower of Jesus. But also, so do sorrow, pain, and anguish. This is real life. And even more so if you choose to follow Jesus and go against the grain of this world. And so Jesus asked them in verse 46... Why are you sleeping? As a matter of fact, Matthew and Mark says he prayed, he went and found them sleeping. Why are you sleeping? He prayed and went and found them sleeping. Why are you sleeping? He did this three times. You just got to love his patience with them. You got to love his patience with me, with you. And so he tells them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Obviously, they didn't feel like praying they felt like sleeping <laughs> you ever been there there are times when I don't feel like praying I just want to go sleep and hope it disappears but prayer is it's not only something that should flow from my circumstances when all is well and when I feel like praying but prayer is something Jesus shows us here that I bring to my circumstances when all is not well and I don't feel like praying. In our world that is so plagued with anxiety, a world not unknown to Jesus and his followers, prayer is, is an antidote to anxiety. The 19th century songwriter Philip Bliss accurately described Jesus with these words. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray as we enter into communion. Father, we pray that you will take this story and we ask that you would embed it deeply into our hearts. Teach us to pray. We confess before you now in this moment of quietness that we battle with stress and anxiety and depression and all kinds of aspects that bring mental anguish and pain emotionally. We thank you that you get that, that you understand that. We pray that you will help us hear this reminder to come before you and bring our prayers to you. But we also thank you for the way this story helps us gain an incredible appreciation 
for what you chose to go through, what you were willing to go through on our behalf. And so as we go to the tables now to take this bread that represents your body and we go to the tables to take this cup that represents the blood, we appreciate you. We thank you. We celebrate you. We thank you that you are indeed that man of sorrows. So we're going to stand in a moment and, and go to the tables. For those of you that are, are, are not comfortable going to the tables, we have communion cups that are communion kits that are available on, on these two different tables. We have prepared a song that we would like for you to hear the words to. And so we're going to ask that this be a quiet, contemplative moment of taking communion and letting the words of this song uh, minister to you. And if in going to communion, I would ask that our shepherds go ahead and go position themselves to the tables, if you would, those that are there. And if you're carrying a heavy burden, and most of us are, and you need prayers this morning, I want to encourage you to ask one of our shepherds to pray with you. If you know someone that's carrying that heavy burden, um, let's go to God in prayer. Would, 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 you, would you stand and let's take this time? Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.